Martha's words. Evening, everybody. Thanks for coming to the boundless mind but limited space. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to see you all. So before I uh, begin my talk, I would like to make one uh, small point. Uh, It turns out, uh, it wasn't my plan, but it turns out that uh, I've spent uh, most of my life uh, contemplating religion as a full-time occupation. So here's what I've discovered so far. that uh, if you're a human being with human consciousness and language and imagination, it means that you uh, have been born from a mother and that you are going to die. And if this all is true for you, it means that inevitably you have a religious life, a spiritual life, and there's no getting around it. And the question becomes, uh, what are you going to do about it? And, and that's a problem that we all have to deal with. And that's why uh, wherever you go, anywhere, anytime, there's always some, some form of religion, meaning uh, some kind of doctrine and institution. Uh, although, as we all know, religion doesn't necessarily help with this, and sometimes uh, it can even hurt. Uh, in, in Zen practice, in, especially in, in Dogen Zen, which is the kind of Zen that is practiced here at Boundless Mind and, and the kind of Zen that I practiced for a long time, we do uh, Zazen, simple sitting in silence, as we were doing before I began talking. And what I've come to feel about Zazen, because uh, I've been doing it all this time, and I'm always thinking, you know, what in the world am I doing here? And now I'm thinking, and have been for the last few years, that to sit down in Zazen, can you hear if you, is it working? Can you hear all right? Just barely. Okay. How about now? Better? Yeah. I'll try, if I, if, do this, if I, my voice falls. Um, so, uh, I have the feeling now that, that to sit in Zazen is very simply to sit in the middle of the actual feeling of being a living person, of being alive. That's what we're doing when we sit in Zazen. We're just sitting down and we're feeling the feeling of being alive. It's, it's really as simple as that. We kind of try the best we can to let go of our various issues and problems that need to be solved and so on and just sit there with the concrete feeling of being alive, which means breathing, feeling the body, uh, being aware of things that come and go in the mind. But it's that simple, just sitting in the middle of the feeling of being alive. So it's a good, simple practice. It's a good, solid and simple practice. And somehow or other, it turns out, and I can't explain this really, and I don't know if anybody can, there seems to be, I mean, I've discovered from my own life and working with many people over the years, that oddly enough, for no reason that you could figure out, there seems to be a healing power in just this returning to the simple feeling of being alive. There seems to be something that happens to your life, to your heart, to your relationships, you, you seem to somehow come to a new standing in your life. And that affects you and the people around you, and, and I think, in the end, also the world. So that's a little point I wanted to make in the beginning before I start my talk, and uh, say that, that if you have a chance to... Uh, I know you're all busy. Goodness, this is New York, you know. <laughs> I know you're all busy, uh, but if you ever have the chance to just sit down 
and devote yourself for a short amount of time uh, to the feeling of being alive, it will really make a difference to you. And, and, and this is that there should be a place, uh, a boundless place here in Brooklyn that where you can do this is, is really a, a miracle and a treasure. And I am so impressed and amazed that Greg and Laura can pull this off and sustain it, apparently, uh, that I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of it. And I'm just saying that come sometime and just sit down in the middle of being alive. And you especially appreciate it when you're in trouble, when something's going on in your life that is really tough. The last thing in the world you think you're going to do is sit down in the middle of that. But I'm telling you that if you do, you'll be glad you did, and it will help. Okay, so that's not my talk, though. Uh, what I wanted to talk about is, uh, that was just a small point I felt moved uh, that I should make in the beginning, that it was important to say. But, uh, so I, what I want to uh, do tonight, I, I was thinking, you know, I'm, here I am in, in Brooklyn where everybody is really smart and thinking about everything. So I thought I should give a talk <laughs> which engages uh, all of this. So... Uh, recently, someone asked me to write an article, uh, uh, an essay for a, a book, uh, a scholarly book, and I'm not sure exactly what it's about, uh, uh, what the book is about, but uh, it seems to have something to do with uh, uh, Judaism and the Jewish understanding of language and avant-garde poetry. And, I, and I'm a poet, so there's some, and I'm Jewish, there's some sense to that. But also the reason why they wanted me to write this, me in particular to write this essay, is they also wanted to have included in this article and in this book uh, a sense of what silence had to do with all this. So they figured, I spent so much time sitting around in silence, maybe I would have something to say about this. So I wrote this essay that I'm going to try to present to you uh, which is called Light, Silence, Word. And it's a little long, so I'm going to be uh, carefully attuned to your uh, level of attention, and if you, if you get bored, I'll, I'll know you don't have to say anything. <laughs> Although if you want to, you could say, this is getting really boring. But, and, and, I'll, and I'll just sort of stop. I'll find a clever way to tie up the loose ends and stop there. <laughs> but maybe I'll get through it. So the first part of the, this part, part one, there's three little parts. Part one, a light is mysterious, both a wave and a particle, and therefore neither one. Light is a universal constant, neither medium nor content. Light is strangely all-pervasive. Seeing anything is not so much seeing the thing as seeing the light that falls on it and is reflected from it. And actually, it's not even the reflected light that you're seeing. You're actually, actually seeing the afterglow after the light has died. So you don't actually see things physically. You see the afterglow of light that has died after it's reflected off the thing. Light activates I and consciousness only after it has disappeared. It's faded radiance bouncing off of objects. So light is very strange. Actual, everyday light that enables us to live in this world is a strange phenomenon. And in almost every religious tradition I have ever heard of, light is associated with the divine with the supernal, with God, with pure consciousness. So much so that you almost can believe that in some strange way, life, light, that is, light actually is consciousness somehow, or, or a form of consciousness. And that matter, physical stuff, solid stuff, is somehow a coagulation of light, a grosser form of light, which I think may actually be so. <laughs> In heaven, 
or in nirvana or in pure consciousness or whatever other sort of higher realm you want to postulate, objects with all their stubborn messiness and grossness surely fade away and there's only light and all heavens and all traditions are described this way as only being light, only light, sheer luminosity and nothing else. And there's a text in Judaism uh, called Zohar. It's a famous mystical text. And the word Zohar means radiance. And it's a text that uh, supposedly is written by a 2nd century rabbi, but really is written by a uh, 13th century uh, Spanish Kabbalah rabbi named Moses de Leon. And, and Daniel Matt, a great Judaic scholar, has been working. Some, somebody came forward to support him for more or less the rest of his life to translate this text, which is many, many volumes, and he's been working on it now for a number of years. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to talk a little bit about this text and a little bit about the background of it, how, how it came to be. So Kabbalah, you m- must have heard of this. Movie stars are, are the one, you know, do Kabbalah <laughs> practice. And uh, what, what is Kabbalah? So it seems like uh, it's mystical, esoteric Judaism, and it, and it probably is very early in the tradition, but it remained uh, a secret, an esoteric tradition, until the time of Moses de Leon, uh, when, for the first time, Kabbalistic works went public in reaction to the influence of the thought of Moses Maimonides, who was the greatest physician of his day and also the greatest rabbi. In fact, probably the greatest rabbi in all of Jewish history, the, the, the sort of the one rabbi that is always referred to. And he was an Aristotelian and a rationalist. He got the Greeks through uh, the Islamic culture because he was living in Muslim Spain. So, Maimonides thought of God as a sort of, you know, the prime mover, you know, the ultimate cause and support of reality. God, for Maimonides, was absolutely a logical necessity of, of contemplation and thought. And like Freud, although unlike Freud, Rambam, of course, was a rabbi, not an atheist, but like Freud, he thought of all of previous Judaism as childlike, childish. And he felt that with now bringing in Greek thought into Judaism, he now brought it to its ultimate form as a path of religious contemplation and ethics. And for him, the purpose of Jewish observance was not to honor and appease God, because it seemed obvious to him that why would God care? And need, why would God need you know, us to do anything? You know, God is sort of beyond everything. Why would God need us to do anything? So that was not the purpose of all the many observances of, of Judaism. The purpose was to educate, tame, and improve us so that we would be capable of coming into a kind of human perfection which would be in line with the divine plan toward sort of universal goodness and the final perfection of the world. So this was sort of the Rambam's basic theology, which the Kabbalah people thought was the worst thing they ever heard in their lives. This was like absolutely anathema to them. And that's why, and it was becoming so popular and so pervasive that to, to combat it, they, they finally published their secret works. To the Kabbalists, to see Judaism as a gradual path of self-improvement was to trivialize what it was all about. In contrast, they saw that Jewish daily observance was a desperately urgent mechanism for revolutionizing the cosmic order on a moment-by-moment basis, which, in its fallen state, was perilously close to endlessly being lost without ever being redeemed unless people now practice their religion. So, for them, God was not a philosophically necessary, impersonal entity. 
God was intimately, even personally, wrapped up within the world and within human consciousness, within human actions, and especially within human language. Especially Jewish actions and language, of course. So that Jewish religious acts, the Kabbalists thought, were on a constantly, were constantly crucial to the fate of the universe. And the burden of Kabbalistic mythology and practice is the mysterious and direct correspondence between the world below and the world above, between human action and the divine plan. And there's a Kabbalistic legend that at the time of creation, something went awry, the divine sparks that were supposed to remain in the supernal realms kind of fell out of their vessels into the earth, into the world, and it was our job to find those sparks and lift them up. And that was the point of all of our spirituality. And once we lifted them up, then the world would be revolutionized. And until we did that, we were in a desperate condition. So, whereas the Rambam was philosophically, patiently, wisely, hopeful about the human condition, the Kabbalists were constantly and urgently grasping at straws every day. Now, uh, Arthur Green, who's a, 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 a rabbi and, and a, a scholar, writing about this, says, to know God is a necessary condition of proper worship. On this, the Kabbalists agree with the philosophers. Of course, the two camps differ radically as to the significance of the phrase, to know God. The philosophers, meaning the Rambam and his many, many followers, thought that to know God was a matter of intellectual contemplation, of, of teachings, of scripture, and of creation itself. You know, they would look up at the sky, and they would contemplate the sky, and they would think, of course, there's a creator. As, the, as they spent hour after hour, you know, letting the pattern of the sky sink into their hearts. This was not the case for the Kabbalists. To them, to know God meant mystical transport, mystical union. And the way they achieved it, mainly there are many systems of meditation, but mainly they were language-based ecstatic concentration practices. They were language-based. And they were obsessed with language. They were not merely interested in, you know, thinking and the meaning of words and so on, interpretation. And study for them was not merely an intellectual act, because for them, every word of text masked hidden depths that revealed operations crucial to the salvation of the world. And every word of text was related not only to every other word of text, but to everything else throughout the universe, throughout the whole of the mundane and the supernal realms. Things of the world were also called words. And in fact, in Hebrew, as in many other languages, the word devar, the Hebrew word devar, means both thing and word. And this is also true in Asian languages. And, and after all, in the Bible it says, you know, God spoke the world into being, didn't go into his workshop and like, you know, with a chisel and a hammer and make this and make that like maybe Santa Claus does in his workshop, you know. God just spoke each thing into being. So language had that kind of mysterious creative power. And so what was the nature of God's speech and of human speech and how did they correspond to each other and how could you use human speech to come to that level of speech that was ultimately salvific and creative. They said that the Torah was actually written in light. Every letter was light. And within, each, within, within this light, all mysteries were contained. So that the book was the world, and the world was the book. And to those uh, who complained then, as they do to this day, that the Torah, the Bible, the five books of Moses, the so-called Old Testament, is a primitive, nasty text full of violence and vindictiveness, the story of a terrified people and a really terrible God. 
To those people who felt this way, the Kabbalists, Kabbalists just shook their head and said, how could they know? How could they possibly know? How could they, and how could they explain to them? Because without faith, without spiritual practice, without these secret tools of contemplation of text, how could they ever understand you know, what the text was really saying? They knew that Torah was not saying just what it seemed to be saying on the surface. It was saying that plus everything else in ineffable ways. The words, the letters, were said to be fire. The page was burning. Behind every letter of every word of the text, every infinite pinpoint of burning light lay universe upon universe. And this uh, feeling for the text of Torah actually existed long before the Kabbalists. It was already spoken of in the Talmudic period. Because there had been a cult, you know, a, a physical cult of, a, of the temple. And the temple, which with powerful ritual actions, and the temple was destroyed and not rebuilt. And so all the efficacy and power of those ritual actions got sucked up into the book. And they now existed in the book. So Judaism had been a cult of ritual, now it was a cult of the book. So therefore, the words of the book could not possibly be merely what they seemed to be. Each was subject to infinite interpretation, and there were infinite approaches to interpretation. And there's a famous teaching in Judaism that there are four levels of interpretation. The first one is called the Peshat, the plain meaning, you know, what it seems to say in the text. The second one is called Remes, the level of linguistic correspondence, the textual operation through which completely unexpected meanings are derived. And, one, and the main way they did this was through numerology, where in Hebrew, you know, there's no numero- numbers, so that every letter of Hebrew is a, stands for a number. They would count up the number of, you know, the total number of a word, and then other words that had the same number would correspond to that word. So they could derive all kinds of wacky and unexpected meanings in this way. Then there was Drash, which is a vast compendium of legends and uh, details, because the Bible is such an elliptical text. Outrageous things that were in the Drashes, you know, stories that couldn't possibly be, it's so anachronistic and far-fetched that they couldn't possibly be accurate, and yet these were used to interpret further. And then there was Sud, the level of mystical vision, trance, dreams, visitations, and so on. These four letters, P, Pardes, D, uh, R, Remes, D, Drash, S, Sud, Spell, Pardes, Paradise, Eden. So Torah, in all of its multifaceted interpretations, is Eden, Heaven, Paradise. So that's the Zohar. It's a a commentary on the Torah in this vein. But it's also a a fiction. It's it's actually a novel uh, about the purported author of the text, a second century rabbi, and he's wandering around the Holy Land with his disciples, and they're meeting different people, and they're having conversations, and they're sitting by brooks and groves of trees and so on. So so probably just exactly as Moses de Leon and his disciples sat and taught and enjoyed each other's company uh, many centuries later. And in the text, the, one of the most impressive parts of it is the tremendous delight and wonder that they take in each other and in their uh, insights into the text. A key theme in the Zohar, of course, is light. The word, as I said, means radiance. Light is a key theme. Light and darkness. And, and because of this, the disciples would arise to study at midnight. And the idea was that a thin ray of light would come forth from their learning into the world, brightening up the darkness. So there's a very 
complicated and detailed system of mystical correspondences between upper and lower worlds. Uh, the idea being that the beyond the beyond emanates its ineffable power into the world through a series of steps. And in this essay, I sort of summarize all that, but it's, I'm not going to do that. Just to say that um, one of the themes in this, in that, those correspondences, is hiddenness. Just the same way light is hidden in the darkness. Uh, sparks are hidden in the darkness. Uh, goodness is hidden in the confusion of the world. And this becomes a key theme of the Zohar and of the Kabbalah, the concealment and hiddenness. And it led to theologies like the Moranos in uh, Spain, which were, who were secret Jews, who outwardly were Christians, but secretly were Jews. And, and it became, in Kabbalistic circles, there were some sects in which conversion to Islam or Christianity was actually the highest form of Jewish practice so that you could conceal yourself more fully. I mean, you know, amazing. So, how this, just to say, briefly, if you think about all of these things that I'm very briefly outlining here, you can see the germs of nearly all of avant-garde writing's chief themes. <laughs> They're in all this, if you think about it the revolt against the polite, rational, Aristotelian order of things, for one. A focus on language not as a reasonable conduit of communication, but as an infinitely suggestible medium that writes the world. That's, you find that in avant-garde poetry. Concealment, hiddenness, obscurity, exile. Huge themes in modern, postmodern, avant-garde writing. Intertextuality. The Bible is an intertextual, interpreted intertextually, and so this is a value of avant-garde writing. And the univocal uh, and, and a uh, resistance to closure. Interpretation of the Bible is endless. There is no definitive interpretation of even one letter, of one word of Torah. So endless uh, advancing of, of a text without closure and the uh, resistance to the univocal interpreting self. These are sort of fundamental principles of avant-garde writing. Would you say? Yeah. So, poet. Probably other poets in the room may, maybe would recognize that. So the world is hidden within language. Words are concealing rather than revealing meaning. Meaning is by its essence something concealed. And the not said is contained in the said. The written writes the unwritten. End of part one. That's the Jewish part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for those of you who were alienated by that part, I hope the Zen part will be more <laughs> to your liking. So this is part two. Uh, the, word, the word Zen is a, uh, as probably most of you know, is a Japanese word that transliterates the word Chan, which transliterates the word, uh, Chinese word Chan, which transliterates the Sanskrit word Jhana, which means the practice of meditative absorption. And, and that's because the Zen schools of Buddhism emphasize meditative absorption above everything else. If you look at uh, Zen literature uh, and practice at all, you do get the impression that language, words, text is not only irrelevant, but that Zen is almost hostile to it. A common early phrase uh, in China ab about Zen is beyond words and letters. And language in Zen is often referred to as merely a finger pointing to the moon. You know, forget the finger, go for the moon. Don't get stuck on the finger. So it certainly seems as if in Zen it's silence, not language, not the constant chattering, noise-making language 
that gets to the heart of reality. And the most famous uh, discussion of silence in Zen uh, centers on a koan, which is actually a quotation from the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, and here's the koan. Vimalakirti asked Manjushri, the Bodhisattva, what is the Bodhisattva's method of entering non-duality? And Manjushri replied, according to my mind, in all things, no speech, no explanation, no direction, and no representation, leaving all questions and answers, this is the method of entering non-duality. Then Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, saying, we have all spoken, now you should say, good man, what is a bodhisattva's method of entry into non-duality? And Vimalakirti remained silent. (laughs) So this is uh, a koan in Zen. So it seems as if Manjushri's explanation that explanation, speech, representation are all to be let go of, apparently this doesn't go far enough because he's still talking. Vimalakirti goes him one better by saying absolutely nothing. And and in Zen, they call the silence of Vimalakirti the thunderous silence of Vimalakirti. And it's much discussed and, and explored. Now, the word silence, you know, sounds like one thing, but when you think about it, there are many kinds of silence. Passive silence, frightened silence, silence of withdrawal, angry silence, enigmatic silence, confused silence, manipulative silence, aggressive silence, one could go on. There are all kinds of silence. One person's silence is probably not the same as another's. Avimalakirti's thunderous silence is taken as an ultimate sort of silence, a silence which expresses, without saying anything, the highest, most complete, most inclusive form of truth, beyond which there is no other. Oddly, the Jewish tradition, which we've seen already, is full of language and words and noise, also has a teaching about such an all-inclusive silence. And this is found in one of the drashas, you know, these uh, outrageous stories. One of the drashas explains that when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, in the Bible, it's a very noisy scene. You all saw the the movie, you know. It's very noisy, (laughs) very dramatic. Maybe you haven't seen the movie, you know. I, I, I'm fascinated by Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, which they usually show uh, around the time of Passover on some funky television station. I don't know if they have that here, but anyway, in the movie, as in the Bible, it's a very noisy scene. You know, this mountain is smoking and blazing. There's a terrifying presence, you know, coming from above, a deafening noise. There's thunder, there's horns blaring. It's really noisy. But the drash says that actually this was a moment, the only moment, it says, the only moment ever in the history of the earth that was totally and utterly silent. In the middle of all this noise, there was a point of total and utter silence. In this moment of silence, it was the only time on earth that no animal stirred, there was no wind, And the most amazing thing of all, it says in the drash, there wasn't even a person who commented, gee, look how silent that is. (laughs) Nobody said anything. I told my friend uh, Charles Bernstein, I said, yeah, I was at last week in Connecticut leading a Jewish meditation retreat, silent Jewish meditation retreat. He said, that's impossible. So, uh, lest we uh, then now uh, frustrate ourselves trying to hear this, you know, incredible, inclusive, absolute silence, we should remember two things. 
First of all, the famous experiment of John Cage, maybe you know about, where he tried, being a musician, he wanted to hear silence. And so he went to elaborate lengths to cut out all possible noise and discovered that there is no such thing for a human being as silence because when there's nothing else going on, you hear the rush of your own blood. You hear your heartbeat. You hear your breathing. So there's, there's no way that a human being could experience literal silence. So remember that. And secondly, remember that Vimalakirti's silence, Vimalakirti's thunderous silence, is a non-dualistic silence which is to say, it's a silence that is not opposed to noise. But it's like the silence in the vision of the drash. It's a silence at the heart of noise, not opposed to noise or different from noise, but a silence that is found in the middle of noise. In other words, silence is not something you would hear. It's something that would be in the middle of anything that you would hear. So it's a silence then, that is actually not opposed to language, even though a superficial reading of Zen literature would make you think so. It's a silence that's within words and phrases, not outside of words and phrases. Just like an atom, you know, which is the building block of solid matter, actually has more space in it than it has particles, so words, to be sensible, have more silence in them than sound. Silence makes words possible. In fact, the idea that language is in this sense you know, beyond language, that silence is at the heart of language, it's one of the chief kind of insights and one of the chief practice pathways of Zen. Think about Zen koan practice. Some of you may have heard about it. It's a pretty well-known practice. What is it, after all, if not the practice of discerning the silence within words and phrases? Meditating not beyond the words, but within and through the words to meanings unrestricted by the apparent linguistic contents and limitations of the words. Koan practice is really the practice of phrases, On the one hand, you could say, this is the special creation of the Zen tradition, and it's a brilliant creation, I think. But when you think about it a little more, and think of its essence, it's actually a very commonplace practice in any religious tradition where scripture reading is seen not as an emotional or intellectual pursuit, but as a meditative one. It's also a commonplace practice among poets who are attuned to the silence, to the intuitive, echoic possibilities of language. And that's what makes poetry moving, is you feel the silence in the words. That's the difference between poetry and sensible prose that's telling you something. The practice of phrases in Zen, and and I would say in other traditions, consists of living with, being immersed in, meditating on phrases until they become large and they become strange and they reveal themselves to us, which is to say, we become revealed to ourselves through the agency of the phrase. And phrases means literally phrases, you know, words, groups of words. But it also means the silence, the larger ineffable space that we will find in the middle of and surrounding any word and concept if we would contemplate it long enough and breathe it in to our whole body. And and Zen meditation is a good method for this kind of contemplation. Breathing with phrases and understanding their deeper meanings. So instead of trying to gain mastery over a phrase, as we're always trying to gain mastery over language, and we all went to school, this is, after all, what it's all about, isn't it? Get this material under your belt and be able to show on the test that you've mastered it. 
I'm having like trouble now right at the moment. This is a little aside, a footnote to this. I'm having trouble at the moment. I, I happen to be, uh, I, I'm, 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 believe it or not, I've been working at Google lately. And uh, I, I'm giving a, at Google a course in meditation and emotional intelligence because they're actually quite related. But the Google people are frustrated with me because they keep saying, but there's not enough content. <laughs> they want me to give them lectures on emotional intelligence. And first of all, I'm incapable of that. But even if I were, as I email, I was just emailing them you know, before coming over here, I was saying, first of all, I'm incapable of this. And second of all, I doubt that it would, you'd probably be happier, but it probably wouldn't do a thing to increase your emotional intelligence. So, contemplating phrases is not a matter of mastering phrases. It's a matter of letting the phrases master you, surrendering yourself, going beyond what can be explained and what can be acquired. In Zen, there are a lot of methodologies for doing this. Rinzai Zen which is most known for koan practice, has a very systematized curriculum. All, all the things probably you've read about koan practice are about Rinzai Zen koan practice. But we also have it in Soto Zen, but in Soto Zen it's a little fuzzy and vague, like just about everything in Soto Zen. <laughs> but, I, but I like that. I think it's more lifelike, you know. No curriculum, no set format. And in Zen, in Soto Zen, there's also, uh, some of you know, if you've been, and I know a number of you here have been practiced in, in Zen monastic environments, in, in which, when you think about it, there is a wordless method of working with phrases. And this is the Zen form of mindfulness, which is not to be mindful of something, you know, not being mindful of your thoughts or mindful of this or mindful of that. It's, it's actually mindfulness of the silence, the spaciousness that is at the heart of everything. And you practice the same way. You use your breath to ground yourself and stay intensely present until you kind of feel the silence, the spaciousness at the heart of everything. And then your life becomes a phrase in a way as it appears, you know, moment after moment, uniquely, wherever you are. And you pay close attention to what's happening without defining it or pegging it down to an explanation or an evaluation. And you wait with a sense of intense inquiry in your living to see what will be revealed. And I think the theory is, and I think that it does happen this way, eventually, everything illuminates you, whether it's something that you like or not. It's an agent for illumination. So, again, all that I'm saying here is to make the point that although a superficial look at Zen literature and concepts makes it look like Zen is denigrating language in favor of silence. In fact, Zen is a radical view of language. And it's a radical language practice. And you see this most clearly in uh, the Zen uh, master who is the founder of Soto Zen, Dogen. And Dogen is really read a lot these days by students of Zen, but, but also by philosophers, by, by language philosophers. There's a lot of big books being written, you know, about Wittgenstein and Zen and so on. This is a quote from uh, one of the Dogen scholars. The single most original and seminal aspect of Dogen Zen is his treatment of the role of language in Zen soteriology. 
We moderns may pride ourselves on our acute language consciousness in the 20th and 21st centuries, but Dogen was no less aware. He is similar to us in this regard. And this is really an astonishing thing to think of a 13th century Zen master who has a view of language and an understanding of language that people who have studied contemporary linguistics and language philosophy are learning from. This is really surprising. And, and Dogen was, was one, a rare Zen master who, who wrote, actually wrote in his text, uh, his main text called Shobogenzo, which is a multi-volume work, is considered in Japanese literary tradition as well as in Japanese religion to be a key text. And in his writing, Dogen is constantly complaining about those Zen people who are critical of language and are screaming all the time about silence and abandoning language. He hates that. Over and over again, he expresses his dissatisfaction with this dualistic and unnuanced point of view. And not that it's unnuanced, but for him, it's religiously destructive, humanly destructive. Like other Zen masters, Dogen identified language which is so, after all, embedded in sense of human identity and human perception and consciousness. He understood, like other Zen masters, that language is our prison house. But he also understood that the only escape from that is from within. Not, you can't get outside. So the only way to loosen language's hold on us is through language itself. For Dogen, human beings could only live within language. Heidegger calls language the house of being for humans, the house of being, the the most essential element of humanness. And, And the way out of the house is the full and aware occupation of it, with awareness of its nature, so that in the end, our resistance is transformed into celebration. And here's another quote from the same scholar, a Korean scholar named Heejin Kim. The monastics... Uh, no, actually, this is, this is Kim quoting Dogen himself. This is, so this is Dogen's words. The monastics of future generations will be able to understand one-taste Zen, you know, essential Zen, based on words and letters, if they devote their efforts to spiritual practice by seeing the universe through words and letters and words and letters through the universe. And then he says again, Dogen, how pitiful are they who are unaware that discriminative thought is words and phrases and that words and phrases liberate discriminative thought. Maybe I'll stop there because that, that's long enough. Um, anyway, so that's clear, right? You understood what I was saying? <laughs> yes? <laughs> So, I find that a lot of people uh, practicing meditation are basically waiting around to escape from themselves. And that's what they think it's going to happen when they get enlightened. Somehow they will become instantaneously immune from being themselves. And all of the problems that are associated with being themselves will somehow or other and this, of course, this is a very unexamined assumption. You know, but they read the books and they said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somehow, they're going to get enlightened and, and, and become uh, transcend. The self is, it's a little vague, but something's going to happen. But one doesn't have to think about this very long to realize that it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And actually, when I see all the frustration that people go through, when year after year after year they're waiting for this you know, uh, miraculous 
occurrence to happen. And since it hasn't happened, they, they can only come to one conclusion. They're doing it wrong. So they're asking me, obviously I'm doing it right, so could you please explain to me how to do it right so that I could do it right and get over myself? So all of this goes to say that the way to get over yourself, and, and goodness knows we all do have to get over ourselves, <laughs> that the way to get over yourself is by becoming yourself, becoming, really becoming human, and really accepting that completely, and understanding that your story and your sense of self and all of your problems are constructions of language. You can't make them go away because you wouldn't be here if they weren't here. So you need them, and they're lovely, and they're wonderful, even though you hate them. <laughs> but when you understand that they're constructs, you can celebrate them. You can celebrate your various lunacies and deficiencies and faults. When you're no longer struggling against them, when you're no longer trying to break out of the prison of yourself and imagining that somehow your religious practice is going to do that for you. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> well, you'll forget it, or maybe it's wrong. <laughs> so, okay, that's all I have to say. And uh, do we have ten minutes, maybe more? Ten minutes more, in case there's anything that anybody wants to say. Or so I did pretty good. You heard everything, right? Great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.